Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode 24 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. So this episode is an interview with Howard May, president of Schwartz Industries. He and I were stuck in a car together, literally stuck in traffic for about an hour and a half. And now I get to share what I learned from him with you. Enjoy. You know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and I think that's incredibly important in an organization. You know, I care about the people here. You know, I love the people here and I respect the people here. You need to build that respect both ways before people will excel. And when you get that right, they'll do great things for you and for, for the customers in the organization. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group That's what my show is about, learning from the best, how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Howard May. A little backstory for my listeners. Your team was so kind to invite me to be the keynote at a large gathering Schwartz just hosted for all your distributors. The event was an incredible experience, and you all took such good care of me. Thank you so much for that. And we ended up getting stuck on the freeway together for an hour and a half. What should have been a 15-minute trip turned into an hour and a half when an 18-wheeler caught fire. And, you know, literally we came to a stop, and there's fire trucks and police officers flying by us. And obviously I'm glad that everyone ended up okay. No one was injured in that accident. I also got 90 captivated minutes with you. And it was so great to get to know you as a person, but I really, really was impressed and intrigued with you as a leader. And I learned a lot from you. And you said a lot of things stuck in that car that day that that uh, I want to share with my listeners to help them grow as leaders as well. So first of all, you've been with Schwartz for how long? Since 2011. Uh, first, tell us, what is Schwartz Industries? Schwartz Industries is a global manufacturer of uh, street cleaning capital equipment. Uh, we distribute uh, through uh, uh, 34 dealers. We distribute around the world as well, and um, we, we, that's what we do. We sell to municipalities. We sell to uh, government agencies. We sell to private contractors, and we, our, our business is in two segments. One is uh, the, the larger equipment, which is sold through the dealers. The smaller equipment are the small entrepreneurs, the, the Johnny or Sally that has a few Walmart parking lot contracts, and we sell uh, a line of product direct to them. Yeah, and so for those of you, for the layman, literally it's the giant street sweepers that you see. And I curse you and thank you guys on a regular basis because, first of all, you keep the streets and, and walkways so clean, and I love that. However, if I don't move my car in time, I get a ticket <laughs> for those street sweepers <laughs> here in Manhattan Beach, California. So I think that's so funny. But uh, so incredible company, and I got to witness that up close and personal. But before that, you've been part of turning other companies around. Did you, you know, talk to me a little bit about your career leading up to Schwartz? Yeah, most of my career for nearly 40 years now has been startups and uh, turnaround situations. I've really spent uh, my career in three different uh, very large companies, uh, the first of which was building cars for uh, Mazda when they opened up their facility in the mid-80s in Flat Rock, Michigan, and and of course, Ford Motor Company really uh, midway through that 10-year period um, took over control of Mazda more or less. And uh, so, 10 years there, uh, awesome experience. Uh, had uh, two of the, I went from a supervisor to uh, a, an assistant uh, to a superintendent to an assistant manager to a department head. 
eventually reporting to a Ford Motor Company general manager. And and I had, uh, as a department head, two of those years, I had two different uh, Japanese senseis that their whole role was to sit next to me and develop me and my department. So it was really the base of uh, learning for for everything else that I've done in my career. And then I spent 10 or 11 years with uh, Textron, uh, which is a global, international, uh, multi-industry company, uh, about $12, $13 billion in revenue, and spent uh, several different assignments, several different states, and a couple of countries along the way there before uh, coming to eventually the Alamo Group, uh, where I spent time with 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 uh, uh, Bush Hog, and then uh, and then here at uh, at Schwartz. Wow, what a great experience! Uh, lots of great experiences along the way. So Japanese senseis, that was intriguing. <laughs> Tell me, uh, you know, they were there to develop you. How did they develop you? Well, they they spent a lot of time developing, as I said, me and my department. Uh, it was just an awesome experience. People people pay a tremendous amount of money for that type of one-on-one exposure, and it was a lot about uh, a process and continuous improvement and Six Sigma, and uh, just 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 how you know how to develop an organization, how to lead an organization. Um, just learned a lot about continuous improvement and focusing on the process. Uh, all too often today, uh, you know, we, 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 many, many leaders tend to focus on the result, and uh, uh, you have to focus on the process. When you focus on the process, you, the results take care of themselves. And, and, and that was something that I, you know, was blessed to have learned very early in my career. And uh, having done mostly turnarounds, uh, it's been instrumental in understanding that and uh, getting the process right. You know, especially in larger companies where shareholder value is so important. It's not what have you done for me lately. It's what have you done for me, you know, right now or yesterday or, you know, I mean, you're under a lot of pressure to perform and get results. So those processes become very important, don't they? So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So so then, and okay, so this is the foundation. So you get all this great experience. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but when you came in five to six years ago with Schwartz, Sales were about half of what they are right now. Is that correct? Yeah, sales were actually less than half of what they uh, were. We've uh, we've uh, taken the, the the revenue uh, and increased it by 115 percent in four years, so that we you know we've more than doubled it, and we have a very very uh, uh, distinct strategy to come close to tripling it by the time we get to 2019 2020. Nothing like setting large goals. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's not easy to get there. So did you have a reputation of being a turnaround guy? Well, yes. I mean, most of my career has been, as I said, in, in, in turnarounds. And, uh, you, you know, it, it, uh, when you're in a sustaining environment, there, there, there are folks that I've found in my, throughout my journey that, that can uh, run effectively, uh, effectively run sustaining operations. But uh, it takes a different set of skills to to really do a turnaround. Now, most folks that can do turnaround or uh, organ- turnaround organizations can also do the sustaining. But as is typically the case, and in my case, uh, those individuals typically get bored when it comes to uh, too long in a sustaining environment. Right. No, I understand that there are definitely uh, people who love to build, 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 and not want to. They don't want to manage. So I, I want to dig deeper into that. Like, how do you lead through something like that? Like, what does the actual application of leadership look like? Because there are people listening right now, I promise you, that are, you know, just being promoted into a new position or will be at some point. So what are the steps that you take when you come into a new role to set yourself up and the teams up for success? 
Well, you know, every every situ every turnaround is 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 different and has un- unique uh, uh, contributors to it. But but um, I mean, in, in a in a worst case, the turnaround is is what I, you come in initially in a command, what I call a command and control environment, where the it is the patient is is uh, is 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 in such dire straits uh, that you you don't have a whole lot of time to explain a whole lot. You're in a command and control and making decisions and not necessarily taking the time to uh, go into a lot of explanation. And then over time, that con- command and control changes. Mo- most turnarounds I found are, are not necessarily fall into that category, although I've been through a couple of them. And it, very early on, Schwartz was that way. I mean, generally, you know, my approach has always been, you know, to to come in and you know size up the organization. To do a lot of listening, okay, I, uh, you know, it, and and that's really really important uh, to understand what's going on in the organization. To listen to a lot of people in the organization, you know, from the folks on the floor that that touch the product day in and day out to to other senior leaders in it. So so you know, once sizing it up, I mean, it, some of these things are going to sound cliche, and it's not certainly not rocket science or anything that I I, I invented, but 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 it it's a matter of the first thing is you, you have to get the people right. Uh, it is so important to get the people right and the organizational design right. And, and this is classic. It, it's a, it's the, the get, uh, uh, some people have to get off the bus and some people have to you invite onto the bus and some people change seats. And then within that is some organizational design changes. And, you know, here at Schwartz, uh, this is a company that uh, uh, is now 43 years old. Uh, it has a great brand, uh, but by the time I arrived in very late 2012, I spent the first couple of months with my predecessor. And just a little bit of history, Schwartz was sold to the Alamo Group in about 2000. Uh, it was a great buy. Uh, uh, Mark Schwartz sold the company. His dad, Bob Schwartz, had passed away some years earlier. And Mark stayed on as the initial president, as is oftentimes the case uh, when you've been grown up in a uh, family-held entrepreneurial environment, privately held, and then you transition to a publicly traded company. Uh, some folks can make that transition, but uh, oftentimes it's it's a struggle. And and Mark stayed on for the first three or four years and got to the point where he could not make that transition. And they put in a new president. And uh, this I've not met this gentleman, but this person, everything I've learned about him was I would describe as as all brawn and and no brain. Uh, and and uh, it was uh, pounded his chest, very autocratic and dictatorial. And then uh, that lasted three or four years, and then they brought in my predecessor, who was just the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet, but he had the brain but not the brawn. And you have to have a good combination of both because at the end of the day, businesses businesses are not democracies. Uh, you know, they, they, they are dictatorships by design. Now, when I say that, some people get a little little excited you know, there are forms, uh, that's just the way they're designed. Ultimately, the buck stops at some person or some CEO or some president or some board of directors, ultimately the shareholders. So, uh, but there's different forms of uh, dictatorships. There's what I call inclusive and exclusive. And, and I'm all about an inclusive form of leadership here. So by the uh, February of 2012, I was put in the interim. And then about four months later, they got the, the eraser out. And I, of course, never acted as as an interim. I, I was full speed ahead, focusing again on getting the people right. 
Uh, and so, you know, so let me, inter- let me let me interrupt you for a second because you said you talked about um, getting the people right and listening. So, how how do you do that? Is it meetings? Is it forums? Like, did you call people in one on one? Like, how did that happen? Well, I, I'm not. I don't believe in that kind of a. Some some people are comfortable with that formal of an approach. What I I do is just I'm very informal. Uh, you know, yes, there's some structured meetings that typically are in place when you arrive. You go to those. You listen. You ask a few questions. Uh, and 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 then it's a matter of working through the organization and just talking to people, talking to the folks on the floor. For example, very early on. I spent a couple of days where I showed up in the morning and uh, with uh, jeans on and a and a work shirt and spent uh, a, a few days on the floor building sweepers and uh, turning wrenches and listening to the folks on the floor because at the end of the day, if you're manufacturing something, that's what you do. And you know we have we have human resources, we have design uh, uh, engineering, we have manufacturing engineering, we we we, we have sales and marketing those are those are all necessary departments but that's not what we do what we do is we make sweepers and so that that's a big part of what I do is just informally go around and listen and ask questions and learn about what's what the condition of the organization is does that answer your question yeah Dan? absolutely absolutely so go go back now so go back you're you, you got to get the people right yeah I mean, from, 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 I'll just give you one example, of, well, two quick examples of an organizational design change that I made very early on. I mean, in all my, the turnarounds that I've done within the first, you know, year, probably 60% of my time or more is spent on the people side of the business and the people and the culture. And we'll talk more about culture uh, later on. But one of the things I did very early on was take a gal, plucked a gal out of finance that I learned had, again, through my talking and listening, uh, asking questions, had a marketing background, and we desperately needed somebody to head up the parts department, sales and marketing there, because in in any type of uh, business where you're making stuff, if you don't have a a robust uh, parts business, you don't have a business. So, so I put this gal in there, and she has done. You, you met met Brenda at, during our dealer meeting. Yes. She's done an awesome, awesome job, and it's just just developed very nicely. Another thing I did was uh, Schwartz had never had uh, what I call product management or program management. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably, but product managers are the link between voice of the customer and design engineering. When you don't have that link. You do what I call stupid things. You d- you develop product that you not the customer doesn't necessarily want because you really don't know what the customer wants. So uh, in our case, we put a, we eventually got a couple of people in that role, and their offices are next to each other. And just as a visual cue, uh, when you go through our facility here in Huntsville, Alabama, the two product managers, and first of all, we have two of the best. In, certainly in, in this industry, and uh, their doors, their offices have two doors to them. On one side, their, their door uh, enters into the sales and marketing organization in which they report to uh, uh, Greg Heyer, the, the VP of sales and marketing on my staff, and then uh, the other side of their office has another door, and that goes into design engineering that's headed up by Dale Glubrick, who's also on my staff. 
So, so that, that, that role is so important, whether you're making cars or whether you're making widgets, whatever you're making, you have to, that's the link between voice to customer and design engineering. And that was never in place at, at, at Schwartz. So they, in fact, did develop product that failed, that did not meet the expectations of the market. And so what innovation they did, which was very limited at the time and had been limited for a number of years, uh, what they did do was, generally speaking, not successful because of just they d- just didn't have that link. So that's a couple of des- uh, organizational design changes. But, but within the first 12 months, uh, and I never come here to you know, a clean house, so to speak, in any turnaround. But as it turned down here in the first 12 months, I, I had uh, basically uh, asked all of, all of my direct reports, all six of them, to leave the bus uh, and had recruited uh, others who could uh, come in here with the right uh, culture in mind and mindset um, and 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 that 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 happened within the first twelve months, and then there was numerous other internal subtle changes in movement, uh, movements in people and their their assignments. Uh, so so in this case, Schwartz started out very early on as a command and control, but very quickly transitioned away from that. So uh, so let me ask you, how did you figure out that they weren't a good cultural fit? Like what do you what do you mean by that? Why weren't they? Well. Um, well, they they tended to build silos. Um, you know, uh, we we when when I when I have a staff meeting or when we have a morning operations meeting every day, and I don't have many staff meetings, but when I do, whenever you have when you're a person in my role, you have a staff meeting. After that meeting, the organization knows everybody, every single person in the organization knows very quickly, and and we don't have to say anything. They know it by our by our expressions, they know it by our body language, they know if you're on the same page. And I could not get these individuals to uh, away from the silos that they had built over a period of years that was ingrained in the organization that was uh, tearing the organization apart. You know, there was, there was huge walls, a wall between the salaried side of the organization and the folks on the floor. Well, you know, to me, the folks on the floor, if you're building something day in and day out, and you're touching that, that piece and you're assembling those components day in and day out, you know that product better than the engineers do. Now, the engineers don't like it when I say that, but the fact of the matter is it's true and we need to learn from them. The folks on the floor don't know the engineering terms, but they know what works and what doesn't, and they generally have some really good input as to how to change that. And it's things like that that was not happening and that I couldn't get it to happen. And and again, it wasn't, it was over a 12 or a 13 month period. Uh, it, it wasn't just coming in and just cleaning house type of thing, because you don't want it, you always want to be careful in any turnaround situation, you know, not to shock the system. But this but was, it also goes back to that whole listening side, right? Just listening and learning and, and, and having an open mind and connecting people who should be talking. So, and, and I think right. that, and, and, and I appreciate you bringing all this up because I think that that was what I was intrigued by. It was your, you know, seeming ability to connect with people and find good people and care for relationships with good people. And so, and that's, you know, all relates back to building and preserving a healthy company culture. So if you don't mind, can we dig into that for a second? Because you know, first of all, what is your strategy to build a culture? Like, what is your vision for how you personally build the company culture and empower others to build it with you? Well, uh, I mean, you know, 
culture is is not to me to me this is me now uh culture is not just something that's important to an organization it's 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 the most important part okay if you don't have the culture right uh that's inclusive uh you, you, it, it things are just just not going to work and you know at our dealer meeting when i spoke about uh how we have gone from improve the business by 115 percent in four in five years, you know it's 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 not complicated. It's organization getting it right. We talked about that earlier. It's in on every deal, which is not always the case. It's the innovation. We'll talk more about that. And it's culture. And when when, when I when I talk about culture, I, I I don't want you know for me I don't want bobbleheads around me. I want people to feel comfortable disagreeing with with me. And, you know, I want healthy, passionate conflict in an organization, okay? I want people to always question the data, always question the data. Even though this is a dictatorship, again, it's the culture that makes people comfortable in questioning the data. I want them to question me, okay? It's okay to question me. It's okay to question anything. I want people to play outside of their sandboxes. So Howard, now, Howard, in in the car that day, you know what you said? You said it, it was your controller, right? In the back, in the that was yeah, with us. Yeah. So he, you said as a joke, you know, the story of the of this the controller at the end of the interview. You say, "What is two plus two? And he said, "What what do you need it to be?" And you said, "You're hired." And we we all kind of laughed, right? Yeah. But what is yeah. the balance there? Because you're talking about having them be able to say what they need to say and question the data and all of that. But how do you find someone who's willing and able to help you execute the vision, but who is well, also, but but also isn't a sycophant like you know a yes man? Because you need people to tell you the answer is going to be four, right? Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, to, you know, when when we're when I'm interviewing, okay, we really focus on you know three the interse- intersection of three circles, and actually Patrick Lencioni talks about this in his book, the the ideal team. Player, and it just brought together for me and summarized things uh, that I've always done in for nearly 40 years. Is first of all, we I want people that are humble, okay? And humble is not not being contrite. Humble is is being confident, but not arrogant about it, okay? Uh, so humble is really really important, okay? And then you look at hungry. I want people that are, are hungry, that are, have fire in the belly, that are wake up as I do each morning and, uh, you know, after I initially uh, get, get out of bed and, and get my faculties together is I, I, I get excited about what the day is going to bring. I get excited about what are what am I going to do and what are we going to do to make Schwartz a better place across the board, a better place for its employees and a better place in the, uh, uh, with the product that we send to the marketplace. So, so, so humble and hungry. And then the third area, third circle is really being smart, but it's not IQ, it's uh, emotional intelligence. And IQ is, is something, as you know, that, that is formed during adolescence and it really doesn't change. You, you know, my cognitive ability to learn is the same today as it was when I was growing up. But what I'm more, more interested in is the emotional intelligence. How well do you get along with your coworkers? How well do you get along with the folks that may report to you? How well do you get along with the the senior lead, leadership type of things? So, uh, you know that that's important. Um, you know, in the, in in when we're when I'm interviewing people in the middle of the interview, I, I ask a question, and I think I shared this with you: is 
is um, once I get people comfortable, uh, I'll say, well, Dan, you know, what is your purpose in life? (laughs) And I'll I'll hesitate for a few seconds because it's uh, generally speaking, it it takes people by surprise. And and some people, you see a little bit of panic in their eyes. So so, uh, I'll, I'll pause briefly, but then I'll say, well, there, you know, there's no wrong answer. It's different for everybody. But the answers uh, are all across the spectrum. But what that does is it tells me a little bit about how they think uh, and, and, and uh, you know, the, their, their emotional intelligence, so to speak. So really, I'm looking for the intersection of those three. And, uh, you know, I, give, give me somebody that's humble and hungry and emotionally intelligent uh, with just an v- average IQ, that's fine with me, because in my case, as I shared with you as well, I have always tried to build teams, whether it's, you know, in a, in a half a dozen locations in the States, the Canada or the UK, uh, I, that if I can surround myself with people that are smarter than me, I, I'm not threatened by that. Uh, I can't develop myself uh, unless I have people that can, can take on what I'm doing. And as far as I'm concerned, the staff that I have here at Schwartz, uh, I think uh, to varying degrees, every one of them are smarter than I am in different ways. And I think that's the sign of a great leader. I mean, you want to, you don't want to be the smartest one in the room. You want to find people smarter than you and, and, and challenge them to, to take you to new levels. And, and, and I think – so thank you for sharing the three circles because I, you did that in the car and I just really enjoyed that because, I mean, the humble, hungry EQ, I mean, all that is just so crucial to being successful in life and, and to, to moving that team down the track together. So you also brought up something very interesting, and, and I'd like you to talk to my listeners about being a successful relationship builder, not just with people on the inside but with – people on the you know on the outside the stakeholders and you, you have relationships with distributors all over the world I get to meet uh, some of them when I was there at most of them I guess what is your strategy there because share with my listeners that story you told me of when you met with a partner at that time a prospective partner in Mexico and you watched how his sons treated him sure uh, yeah I a- absolutely I mean to me Every life is re- relational, okay. Whether it's in the in the workplace, whether it's in, with your family, whether it's in your uh, faith organization or nonprofit, everything is relational. You can't manage or lead. I, I, first of all, I think you lead people and manage assets, but yeah. but but uh, everything is relational. For example, when I came here, some of my predecessors never never really left the building. Sometimes they wouldn't leave the this office that I'm sitting in right now too often, but. One thing that I'm a big believer in is is getting out and having those touch points with the, the, our customers. Our customers really are the dealers, but we also have frequent opportunities and create opportunities to touch base with uh, their customers, which are the end users of, of the product. So, so I very often get out in front of customers. Uh, and it's not always trying to get a deal across the line. It's just getting to know the customers because life is relational. You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you one one quick story. Earlier in my career, I w- had an assignment with a, uh, uh, with with Textron, where I went to this this assignment uh, in in Missouri, and I was the number two person on the site. And uh, my boss, uh, the the lead site person, w- w- did not feel like it was necessary to get out and see the customer. Well, I was able to convince him to get out and do that, and we got to the point where every Friday, nearly every Friday, we would get in the car and drive 
sometimes two hours or an hour to one of our two major customers and spent time with the people that were building the product all the way up to senior plant management people. And, and it turned into a great opportunity for us to, us to talk about the business, but also he, he realized, you know, he was able to uh, appreciate uh, the, building that relationship and understood how important it was. But, it, but in the example that I brought up with you uh, was uh, our dealer in Mexico City, now dealer, is Asica, and it's a, a family operation. Uh, LSAO Jr. and Sr. and uh, other family members are involved, uh, but Jr. and Sr. really lead the business. And uh, I went down to spend some time with them along with Greg Heyer, and we spent three or four days with them uh, in the business environment and also played, played some golf and got to know each other. And one of the things that was so striking to me was the way that LSAO Jr., uh, who is you know, mid to upper 20s, was just doting over his father. You know, he would always make sure he was looked after. He was, if his collar was messed up, he would straighten it out. He would just, so many little small things. And then we're in a wrap-up meeting, getting ready to return, and we're, we're, the four of us are sitting in, in Senior's office, and Greg hires with me, and uh, they ask, my, you know, my thoughts, and I said, well, for, for, first of all, I'm just utterly taken away about with the love that I see between a father and a, or a son and a father, and vice versa. And I began to articulate some of these examples, and within literally seconds, uh, both of them were were bawling <laughs> like you know small children. Uh, and I didn't intend to do that, but it just hit them, and and uh, you know so. So those relations that told me a lot about that organization, about how the, the being humble and hungry and, and emotionally intelligent. So uh, great, great experience. And and you know what what can the rest of us learn from that story? I mean, people are always watching, aren't they? Every every a- every action. Absolutely, everybody's watching. It, it's what you do when nobody's watching that that or you don't think anybody's watching that's important. You know. Uh, People here know that 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 uh, you know I I I treat Anthony our janitor the same way that I treat my staff, okay? And I appreciate him. And uh, you, you, you know I'm 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 overhead. I I I I, re- I really never use my title as president of Schwartz unless I have to in a business setting, okay? Because everybody's got an ego, but 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 what I do doesn't define me. What I do uh, uh, is a means to an end. That doesn't mean that I'm not passionate and driven and got fire in the belly and tried to be my best. And I'm, I'm, all of us fall short, but, but to, to be in the middle of the, that intersection of the three circles. But, but um, I, in, anyhow, does that yeah, make no, sense? I, no, of course it does. And, and it goes back to – I mean you just told me so many great stories that day while, while we were there in the car. And, and there was also another great story that I think has a really powerful lesson. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, would you share that story about a deal that you were trying to negotiate in Australia? And uh, there were, you know, there's a time in business when you're you you're so into a deal. I mean, you put so much time and effort into it, and you're 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 so into it, you you fall in love with it, and you just want to see it happen. But then things change, and maybe the deal doesn't go your way, or it it, it starts to morph into something different. 
and and there's times when you 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 have to be willing to walk away from the table and you were at that moment in a deal that you were trying to negotiate in Australia and so you just got it from the table and I, i'm so fascinated with you know what's going through your head at that moment can you just give me a quick backstory and then and then tell me kind of what was happening with you right at that moment when you when you had to say, threaten to end that deal sure um well uh, Schwartz, for many, going back to when it was privately held, had a small part of their business in, in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, it, it was, in effect, uh, a very small in-house dealer. Uh, we would ship the kits over there, and they would mount the sweeper kit to a local chassis, and they would sell it. So, in effect, they really didn't do any manufacturing there. They were just a handful of employees, 10 or 12, and um, they really f- acted as a dealer. Well, the, the, it's really tough to be financially successful when, when you're only selling a portion of our product line, whereas most all of our dealers have uh, us as one of two or three main lines and carry several other smaller lines. So it was a struggle for many, many years, long, long before uh, Howard arrived in, in, in uh, 2012. So uh, after, again, uh, uh, trying to do uh, a lot of work that needed to be done on the 800-pound gorilla part of Schwartz here in, here in Huntsville, uh, it was time to figure out what we needed to do differently in Australia. And we worked at it, and we worked at it, and we put a disproportionate amount of effort and resources into it. But at the end of the day, it was very clear to me that the, 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 the business model uh, was flawed, and we needed to change the model. So a window opened up to do that, really, literally, with a with a cold call email from 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 an organization that I received uh, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, and uh, uh, they were interested in becoming our dealer. So there was the opportunity, and this particular partner was, in in a, in our opinion, the best possible partner in in Australia. If we were going to pick a dealer, it would be that person. So it was great that they reached out to us. So I spent the next year. Uh, working within uh, the Alamo organization and Schwartz organization to understand how we would transition this business model. So uh, a lot of it was some heavy lifting uh, on this side of the pond. And then once we got that lifting done, I went over there with myself and and uh, the division controller, uh, Robert Word, who was in the backseat of the car with us yes, during the, on the yes. freeway. And uh, and uh, Jimmy Adair, who had had his our senior product manager and had spent a lot of time, uh, he's been with been with Schwartz for uh, for most of their forty year period. So we went over there, and there was a lot of things to do with how, the people and 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 making the people redundant and just uh, the the landlord, just all kinds of uh, things that had to be dealt with. And the deal wasn't totally across the line with this. Uh, uh, organization that was going to be our dealer, uh, they, they they were headquartered in Sydney. So it came down to the point where we had to get a signature on the dotted line and get it across the line. And I told uh, Jimmy and, and Robert before we went in to their offices, I said, now, you know, please understand and don't get alarmed if I have to threaten to walk. Because um, I was just concerned that they were going to want to get into a whole other level of detail that was really quite un- unnecessary, okay? Uh, it was not material uh, in the level of detail that they wanted to get at. It just simply wasn't. So we went in there and started down the path, and very quickly it was a father and son situation again, and uh, they, it was obvious that they wanted to uh, try to nitpick and try to get uh, uh, basically, you know, reduce the deal in some some way, 
Uh, and it, about about the third time that I offered to, well, I actually, I, I the third time I uh, postured to leave, the third time I actually closed my uh, file folder and asked them to call a cab because I didn't think they were serious about getting this across the line. <laughs> So, uh, but and 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 at that point in time, I will tell you, it's probably the most difficult uh, negotiation that I've ever done in my career. Uh, I was looking back at a whole year plus work that could be going down the tube. Um, uh, Jim and, and and Robert were absolutely beside themselves, but at the end of the day, you know, the father and son had stepped down and regrouped, and within a very short order, we had the deal across the line. But it was absolutely the the most stressful thing I've ever done, and uh, uh, just tough altogether. But I learned from it. I I, I really did. I I learned it sometimes. You, yeah. Tell me well, what you learned. Sometimes, learn sometimes uh, if it's you know, sometimes you just have to uh, press on, press on relative to 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 uh, threatening to walk away from something if 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 you know it's not going to be a win win situation. So, and I think the bigger question is, you know, when we talk about what we learn by that, is that you've got to be anchored to something greater than you, uh, greater yeah. than the moment, and and so that you can have the unequivocal courage to walk away from it, and and that just to me becomes very important. So there's a bigger picture. Um, I always say, remember, it's a long ball game, uh, lots lots of time to be played, and, and opportunities ahead, and challenges. But you know, there's that challenge. There's that balance between the need to compromise sometimes with and then the courage to walk away from something and uh, I think you saw that right there and I just love that story because especially that you say that that was one of the toughest moments of your life because it's not easy we do fall in love with the deal we fall in love with the situation and sometimes then we sacrifice everything to keep it going and, and sometimes in business you just can't can you right a- a- absolutely absolutely so you've been an industry disruptor too and 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 changed and influenced your industry how do you how do you look outside of the box for new innovative ways to do things? Well, it's a great question. Um, I, I, I think the, the key is gets, it gets back to that organizational design that I spoke about earlier. So, again, you know, uh, in, back in 2012 when I was building, spending that first year building the team, uh, our competitors, uh, in particular in North America, had really kind of written us off. Uh, this company w- was not growing. It was not innovating. The industry really didn't do a lot of innovation in itself to begin with. So, so uh, we went down the path of line by line, product by product, starting to innovate and improve what the, the existing product. And since then, we've indru- introduced two whole new products altogether uh, that Schwartz had not had. So, you know, our in 2012, if you can imagine, you know the the history and the 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 poor leadership. Uh, you know, our the dealers at that time had were not excited, so therefore their salespeople were not excited about selling the product, and our competitors were simply waiting for us to, um, you know, fall by the wayside. So we we uh, Greg and I articulated to the dealers uh, a vision and a strategy. And we began to, we didn't expect them to believe us. I, we know that they didn't. Uh, we started down the path of executing that vision and strategy. What, what, and what was, was the vision? I mean, just real quick, what was the vision and strategy? So what made it so different and compelling? Well, the, the vision was to innovate and market, do a much better job of marketing. You know, Peter Drucker, a long time ago, I ran across a quote from him, and he, and he says, you know, businesses have 
two and only two basic functions. You know, it's marketing and innovation. You know, he says marketing and innovation produce results. All the rest are cost. And when I first read that as, as an operations guy myself, uh, I don't have a sales and marketing background, but I like to say we're all in sales no matter what we do. Um, that kind of hurt a little bit. But what I have seen and experienced here through this uh, strategy of innovation and marketing, uh, if you look at our marketing today, I mean, Greg does a marvelous job. We are out there all the time on all the public publications. We're not spending a disproportionate amount of money as it relates to, 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 to SG&A, but we are very selective, but he does a, does a great job on the marketing side and the innovation. We've now gone through every one of our products. We released a contractor product in July of 2014, and since then we've sold 10 to 15 of those every month, every single month since then. We're just now at the dealer meeting you attended. You saw we, we introduced our first ever um, pure vac product called the HyperVac. You know, in sweeping, there's there's three uh, three three designs. There's there's uh, mechanical, which is just what it means. It mechanically picks up the debris, and then there's regenerative air, which recirculates the air, and then there's pure vac, which is works like your vacuum cleaner. Schwartz has never had that uh, that before, and so it's this incredible amount of innovation and marketing that we've done. And for me personally, it's been a huge development uh, uh, for, for me because, you know, we've, we've read all the books about marketing and innovation and what it does to an organization, but to live through it, and I, I feel incredibly blessed to have lived through these five years and, and looking forward to the next five years of what marketing and innovation does to a company. So, now, Howard, Howard well, you know what I love about all this is that I love, you know, the question is, you know, how do you keep things fresh and exciting for people in your company? Because let's be honest, to the rest of society, you know, we're not exactly dealing with the sexiest of products. It's street sweepers. And yet it's, right. it's, it's like me when I had my vending business. It was so exciting to, to be innovative and change the way things, you know, people do business and the way we treat our employees. And I, I love hearing your excitement. And I mean, how, how you just said it's so exciting to be here for five years of innovation as we're, you know, changing from mechanical to pure vac and, you know, all this other stuff. But I just think that that's such a big part of it. You have to believe in the product, and you've got to believe in the people. And when you do that, then these great things start to happen. The the, the profit is the byproduct of all of that. No, I absolutely agree. And 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 how do you keep it it fresh? And well, I I think that gets back to the leadership. How you lead people. How how you allow them uh, to succeed. How you allow them to fail. I mean, to me, if you're not failing, you're 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 not developing. Uh, and and for me personally, you know, I I think I shared this with you. I I I I develop best when I'm scared. Uh, uh, when 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 I I just I'm I'm basically, you know, scared of what's going to happen. But I don't run type of thing. But here we've kept it fresh with all the employees because of the dynamic team that we've built, the culture that we have here. When people come here, and I'm, I don't want to come across the wrong way, it's not about me, it's about the, the leadership team as a whole. But people come here, they see and they sense it very quickly from other Alamo companies or, or dealers. Um, they sense the excitement, they sense the people that are involved. And, and, and it's allowing people to develop, allowing them some span of control, allowing them to fail. Uh, and 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 pick it up and and try, try again type of thing. 
and uh, and I got I was I got to sense that firsthand when I was with the with the whole group. I mean, even with your dealers. I mean, it was just it, there was an energy there, and it was very exciting. And 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 you you know it does start with leadership. So let me ask you this: what what one word comes to mind when you think of Schwartz? Uh, when I think of Schwartz, uh, it, the one word comes to mind is uh, is innovation and. Uh, uh, relationships. Yeah, yeah. And innovation, to, you know, just adapt, change. Let, 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 what does leadership mean to you personally? Let me let me go into leadership a little bit because I mean you've mentioned it a lot of times. I just, what does it mean to you personally? Well, I, I as I said before, I, I think you lead people and, and you manage assets. That's why I've never really cared for your department manager. Well, well, you don't manage people; you lead people. You know. Uh, it just has a whole different connotation. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, to me, you know, leaders that don't listen eventually are going to be surrounded by people who have nothing to say type of thing. I think uh, when I when I leave here, you know, the organization should continue to thrive and continue to grow. So it's not about the person that's in my role. You know, I think an organization isn't really great if it can't be great without you. Um, no, and know, I, 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 okay, thank you for saying that because we talk about that a lot. If, you know, the key role of an individual is not just to build an organization, but to build an organization that lasts and that continues yeah. to grow. And yeah. so I get to speak on college campuses. A lot of times I'll talk to kids about, you know, who are running organizations or anything. And a lot of times when those kids graduate, what happens to the organization? It just dies. No one right. picks it up and runs with it. And that's because it was all about them. And when you make it all about, like you said, the process, the 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 innovation, all of these things, it should be able to run, you know, really, really well without you. And so let me ask you this because I think this is important. Can you talk to me about maybe a time in your life when you weren't leading well? Maybe you'd made some decisions that you shouldn't have made? Well, I, I you know, I think that's a good question. I, I, I think very early in my career, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I'm, I still consider myself pretty motivated, but I was quite motivated uh, and with a lot of fire in the belly. And I felt like I had to do it. It was necessary for me to do a lot of micromanaging. Um, and, and, and one of the things I learned about that is that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really, you know, build the trust. Uh, you know, I think it, it breeds dependency. Uh, people begin to depend upon you, especially the, the lesser performers. Uh, so I, I, I learned, uh, you know, that, that, that was, uh, that was a bit frustrating at times, but, but, uh, you know, that, that's probably the biggest thing. And then well, I guess one other example is very early in my career, you know, I, I was reporting to a very senior person in an organization and, and clearly that was not a very good leader. And, you know, I, you know, I, before becoming uh, a president myself, I've reported to, no less than 10 different uh, P or C level people, solid line, and you learn something from them all. I probably learned more from the ones that maybe were not so good at what they did. But, uh, you know, very early in my career, uh, one of these individuals, uh, I ended up uh, was so frustrated with their lack of leadership that I, I, I had a way of networking going around and, and, and some folks at corporate got involved and it just turned into a pretty ugly situation. So the lesson learned there was that uh, poor leadership leaders will, it eventually catches up with you. Uh, it's not, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And once I learned that, I've seen that happen over and over my uh, my career. As frustrating as I might be with somebody or see see somebody in a situation that's not leading well at all, uh, it, it's just a matter of time. Just uh, set tight; it'll take care of itself. 
Okay, so I know we talked about culture. Let's talk about vision for a minute. What is your strategy to effectively create a vision for the people and teams you lead? Well, I, th- I think you, you, you need to, after you've sized up the organization and done, done the, the listening and, and began to, the organization starts to see some of the, the, the changes that you're going to make or, or are in the process of making. I th- you know, I think, uh, you know, it's leading by example. Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's about, you know, trusting each other and respecting each other and, you know, understanding each other. And to enjoy each other, type of thing, as an acronym for you know true winning teams. So, so, so uh, Howard, but what, from a financial, do you set the financial goals? Do you set like what, you know, because you're creating a vision for them to go achieve, and and you've got lofty goals. I mean, look, you just told me you want to triple. You just doubled in five years. You want to triple in the next, you know, x x number of years. So, is that letting everyone see those numbers or, or to kind of taste that and feel that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I will tell you from the Schwartz example early on in 2012, you know, obviously we, we, we had a budget as we do every year. You know, I was aware of what those numbers are, but quite honestly, I, oftentimes I would have people come up to me and say, well, listen, we, you know, we, we really need to do this and, and we have to do this, but it's not in the budget. You know, and I would say, L- listen, is it the right thing to do? If it's the right thing to do, and I believe it's the right thing to do, and we agree, then we're going to do it. You have to not necessarily, that's focusing on the result, not the process. So I think when people see that and you start communicating to them, you know, uh, uh, that, that things are going to change, things are going to get better. We started having quarterly town hall meetings where we shared the numbers. We share very openly with all of the employees exactly where we are at financially. You know, Alamo has a profit sharing program that affects all employees. We share with them that, oh, by the way, hadn't been paid to employees in uh, many, many, many years prior to uh, this new team being formed in 2012. Well, starting in 2013, that's been paid out every year since and largely maxed out to, 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 to the formula. So I, I, I think it's, it's you, know, w- you know, walking the talk and, and, and demonstrating and, and showing them you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's incredibly important in an organization. You know, I care about the people here. You know, I love the people here, and I respect the people here. You need to build that respect both ways before people will excel. And when you get that right, they'll, they'll, they'll do great things for you in an, and for, for the customers in the organization. So I think I know what, how you're going to answer this, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, what are the most important decisions you make as a leader of your organization? Do you think it's related to strategy, finance, or people? I think it's uh, people and strategy. Yeah, I, fig- I figured you'd put them in that order exactly, and then finance is the result of all of that. And, uh, right, exactly. So, all right, describe, because I'm just going to get, you, get a couple questions in here. Describe the one trait you look for in, in, in your top people and why. I love this question. I'm just always curious. Like, what, what's the one word? I, I, I think one it, trait. It's, uh, it's, it's, one word would be, would be uh, I guess, humble. Wow. I think humility is really, really important to the culture. And like you said, I mean, you, you can still be confident, just not cocky, and there is definitely a difference. Right. We, we all rise with the tide together here, even though, again, it's going to sound, sounds like many of these things I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm really not. I mean, businesses are dictatorships. They are, 
But there, again, there's so many, there's different forms. I want it to be as inclusive as I possibly can with input from as many people as I can and, and allowing people to have the span of control, allowing them to fail. The biggest joy that I find in my nearly 40-year career now is not, it's, I've, I've been blessed with a great turnarounds with some great results across the board, great metrics and all of that. And that's nice. But the most important thing to me as a leader is watching people over the years develop, giving them an opportunity. People early in my career gave me an opportunity. They took a risk on me. And I've always tried to take a risk with with people and developing them and watching them grow. I've moved people from state to state at times. Uh, but but that that's that, and, and hearing from those people over the years uh, type of thing, that's what brings me the, the greatest joy. So – this just happened, and that's why I thought it was interesting. So I, ha- I had met a, a president of a company. He was not the CEO. He was the president of the company. And we were able to spend some time together. And it, I thought it was so fascinating. He just put down the boss and put down the boss and put down the boss and and was you know saying how much he cared and everything else. And finally, he stopped, and I said, um, you're not happy, are you? And he goes, what? And I said, the way you talk about your boss, I, I would leave immediately. I would never want to be in that environment. Right. And I said, I said, if I ever – I said, he trusts you, doesn't he? And he goes, oh, absolutely. And I said, if I ever felt like somebody was talking about me like that, that I thought was my right hand, I said, I would, I would get rid of them as quickly as possible. I wouldn't even want them around. I, I just can't even believe you're saying this. And it, he had a stunned look on his face. And anyway, I just received a letter from him. He said, I just didn't even realize I was doing that. And I, I, I thank this guy so much for giving me the opportunity. I, I should have never talked about him like that. And it's – and he wasn't concerned I was going to say anything because I made it clear I wasn't. But I just thought that was an interesting moment where he, he – it was – you know, it goes back to that, you know, how do you help – can you help develop humility? Well, um, I, well, I think, I, think, I think you can. I mean, it, 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 uh, I think you, do, you can. The best way to do it is by example. I mean, what you're describing is interesting. I mean, pe- pe- I've said for a long time people, people join organizations, they leave managers. Uh, or leave poor leaders type of thing, but but uh, I think to develop humility, you have to you have to, you know, lead by example, and and, and people watch you. Everybody's always watching you. And and it is interesting, Howard, because when we were at that event, I mean, you were doing everything. You were part of the mix, and, and not that anybody should be above or, or beneath, but you were just in there. And 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 I think that people appreciate. I heard a lot of just a lot of great comments from people around you. That's why I was intrigued to have you on the show today, just because. That a lot of people cared about you within the organization, and and you could tell it was genuine, and and they went on and on and on, and they didn't have to with me, and so I appreciated that. Um, a quick detailed question, if you don't mind, uh, in your experience, what is the optimal number of direct reports to the CEO or leader in the organization? Like who who reports to you? Like how many people? Yeah, well, I have six direct reports. You know, to me, I think that's kind of optimal. I think if you get a, I mean, you can go to seven or eight. You get you get eight, eight or above. I think is uh, personally, I think is too many. I think six, six is kind of optimal. I have the people who report to me are the uh, vice president of sales. They're all on the same line organizationally wise, but they all have different titles. You know, Greg hires a VP of sales and marketing and customer service. And Greg, great guy, by the way. I mean, awesome, awesome. Yeah. He is the only one of the new team that I knew from a past life. 
Yeah, he was, I knew he was first class. That, that I, I needed to go out and get the best sales and marketing guy out there, and I'm telling you, he is uh, awesome. I've sat next to executive level people at that uh, uh, in, in sales and marketing, and not not uh, had a, been around the better guy. So Greg Heyer and Robert Word is the uh, division controller. Adam Cheneyfelt is a, a purchasing manager. John McKay is the plant manager. Troy Butler is human resources manager, and then Dale Grubick is a director of design engineering, and he's been promoted to a director about a year ago because of just the incredible amount of innovation that he has helped drive. No, I appreciate you, you saying that, and that seems to be an, a good average number around six. So I'm always curious because, I mean, a lot of people have uh, leaders within companies have to make those decisions on, you know, who do they deal with, how much time do they really have, and where is that time spent? So speaking about time spent, what do you spend your time thinking about? Uh, I, I spend, uh, not surprisingly, I spend my time, a lot of time thinking about uh, the, the people and the organization. And, and I would include our dealers because, as I said, uh, you know, as you know, we, we changed down, you know, part of getting the people right, we changed down about half of our dealers in the first three years, Greg did. So I think a lot about the people and uh, how, how do we get how do we get better? And are we do we have the right design in place, et cetera? So beyond that, I think a lot about strategy, uh, tremendous amount uh, strategy, and how do, how do we how do we get to that? How do we uh, uh, make the trajectory of the improvement slope uh, steeper? And uh, uh, the, the the product as it relates to strategy, a lot about that. Um, so I think. I would love for my listeners to get to know you a little bit better personally. Um, share with me just quickly a little bit more about your family and personal life. Well, uh, I, I was born in Ohio, grew up in southeastern Michigan, uh, uh, met my wife uh, after school there. Uh, she went one direction to school and uh, to college, and I went in another direction, and uh, we met uh, in our early 20s and uh, um, um, married a couple of years after that, and uh, she is, from my perspective, is a saint because she's put up with uh, me making a, moving to six or seven different states and working in a couple of different countries, living in the UK for a couple of years with two out of our three kids. Uh, I have three great kids. Uh, Sarah, who's 36, lives in southeastern Michigan, have three grandchildren by her and her husband, uh, uh, eight, 10, and 12, all boys. Uh, I've got uh, Adam, who's a middle, middle son, 33, has a great job in human resources at uh, Coca-Cola's corporate headquarters in, in uh, Atlanta. And then Jared, 27, is in accounting and works for Nissan in Tennessee. And, uh, and Jared is uh, uh, still finding his way. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay, good, good. And, and that's an exciting part of life, that finding the way. We're all kind of still finding our way, hopefully, and, and Absolutely. finding new, uh, new opportunities. So. Clearly a great life, and, and it's good to look at the kids and, and kind of see them doing well and, and, uh, and, and, like you said, part of that journey. But what one piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self and why? What one piece of advice would I give my 20-year-old self? Well, uh, I think uh, it would be something along the lines of, you know, there, there's a verse in Colossians 3.23 that says, whatever you do, do it. With all your heart, you know, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Just to, just to make sure that you you got your focus right from, from right. early on, even. What's yes. the business, the best business or life advice that you would give your kids or grandkids? I would say to them, uh, 
I would say first, the, you know, I heard this uh, Sunday at uh, uh, my pastor said, uh, you know, the, the, the control you think you have in your life is quite an illusion. And I would say that give them the advice that I would uh, like to see, you know, if I would ask for anything to be on my epitaph, it would be simply a servant of the Lord. Yeah, again, making sure the foundation is right <laughs> and, and, and passing that on to the kids and grandkids. So any, anything that would make you feel more fulfilled today? Uh, no, just uh, I, I, I couldn't be happier with the season of life that I'm in and, and, and looking forward to the rest of my life. A passion about any causes? Uh, well, I, 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 I do what, – what volunteer work I do is really – I like to do things that are uh, behind the scenes – uh, that, that are not in the front, maybe because I'm kind of on the front line with what I do most of the time, but small things, you know, uh, small volunteer things, checking fire extinguishers at, at, at a church site, um, uh, t- type of thing. Um, just, just small things. I love to do anything outside, uh, do a lot of, uh, uh running five uh, Ks for, uh, causes. Um, just a couple of weekends ago, I ran a five K for Liz Hurley, uh, Breast Can- Cancer Foundation. So I do a lot of that. Well, that's a good cause near and dear to my heart. So I appreciate that very much. So, um, you know, there's a bit of a misconception in society as to what businesses actually do. And and some say the role of business is to create jobs or to pay people. But the actual role of business, to me, I think in society is to create value for people and communities. And as we said, profits are a result of, of creating that value. Jobs are a result of creating value. So what does Schwartz do to create value? What's the company's big why? Well, I, I, I think the, the, the reason that we do what we do is, you know, first of all, I think you can make a difference, you know, whatever you've been called to do. But, but you know, our calling as a business is to provide product uh, to, to keep the environment clean, uh, to keep uh, you know, uh, the, 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 there's certain requirements uh, to keep the streets clean relative to getting contaminants into the, the water system. That's why you want to clean as frequently as you can. But just uh, it, it, it's, it's to keep, make, make the, the city and the environment a, a better place for everybody. So, Howard, at the end of my speech, I ask a question. And it's how would you want to be described? Like, what what do you want your legacy to be? And I asked the question, and it's a, a heartfelt question. But you know, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want your children to describe you to their children? So, Howard, right now, how would you want to be described? What would you want your legacy to be? Well, it's a great question. I, I think uh, things come to mind like uh, uh, that that uh, I did my best to do the right thing. Uh, I did my best to 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 be an example, uh, recognizing that we all fall short. I think uh, I want would be be remembered as as, as strong and courageous and and unafraid. Um, so those are the things that come to mind. You know what I love about that is is you know I'll go strong and courageous, unafraid. I always say you know what would we do in life if we weren't afraid of things of disappointing people, of living up to certain expectations. And so that's that becomes such an interesting question that I talk about with my kids. So I'm so glad that you said that. Well, Howard, I can't thank you enough for your time today. 
I enjoyed actually, you know, at first when you get stuck in traffic for an hour and a half, you're like, oh my gosh. And I felt so bad for you because I'm like, you're you're stuck in a car with a speaker. So I actually can talk and, and probably talk way too much. So I, I think I did apologize in advance for the conversation we were probably about to have, but I actually really enjoyed it because I took so much away from that. And, and I saw that the, the care and compassion you have for your company, for your, the people within your company, for the mission that you're on each day with the company and with your family. And so I just want to thank you so much for giving me insight and my listeners insight into the way that you lead Schwartz and the opportunities and, and, and uh, that you've had along the way. So thank you so much for your time today. It is much appreciated. Thanks so much, Dan. It was my pleasure. I have to tell you, I I never do. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. I generally stay away from these things. I generally stay away from the press altogether or these things at all. But that that hour and a half in the car uh, made me feel you made me feel so comfortable and at ease as though I was talking to a friend. So uh, I do appreciate your support of our dealer meeting and uh, all the work that you're doing. It's, it's, it's awesome. Thanks so much, Dan. Well, it's my favorite part of what I get to do. I get to meet problem solvers, not excuse makers, and people who are changing our society for the better. So Howard, May, thank you so much and uh, really appreciate it and have a great day. You too now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Listeners, we are also working on some other fun, exciting things coming from the Quiggle Group. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, though, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Garage to Goliath. Subscribing helps others find the show in iTunes. Please also leave an honest review. That's how I get better and make this better for you. And I'd be so grateful to you if you'd share this podcast with others on social media. Send a quick email to someone you think would enjoy it. Just let me get the word out so we can continue to build our leadership legacies together. 